Different Drop, proud supporter of Australia's premier wine podcast, The Vincast, has now made it even easier for you to source fantastic, authentic Australian wines on their brand new website. Uh, it's even easier to find the information you may need. Uh, they've got a fantastic layout, but one of the great things is they've made it even easier for you to get in contact with them, uh, particularly with their live chat function. So if you're online and you're looking for a particular producer or a particular style of wine or a particular grape variety, all you need to do is uh, click on the pop-up, ask them a question, and no doubt one of the guys will get back to you as soon as possible uh, to help find that perfect wine for you. So uh, a great way to go about it is to go to differentdrop.com forward slash intrepid wino, and that's where you're going to find some sort of special packs that are designed for listeners of the Vincast. And uh, and when you're at purchase, make sure you're putting in the special code intrepid wino and the guys at different drop will very generously give you a 10 percent discount and make sure that uh, you are spending over 150 dollars to get free freight anywhere in australia so thank you very much different drop for your support of this podcast and particularly the support of fantastic wine producers many of whom have been on this very podcast On episode 69 of the Vincast, I chat with Alistair Purbrick. Alistair is the owner and CEO of one of Australia's most historic and iconic wine producers, Tabilk, which is located in the Nagambi region of Victoria. We chat about Old Marsan, Old Vine Shiraz, and we also talk about Australia's first families of wine. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And um, my sincerest apologies for having to uh, postpone the Let's Taste Australian Riesling live tasting, which I mentioned on the last couple of episodes. Uh, unfortunately, due to some scheduling conflicts and um, time being a bit short in the lead up to me leaving for Italy uh, at, at the end of this week, uh, unfortunately, I was not able to uh, to get it together, and, uh, and which is a shame. I was looking forward to it, but I can assure you that uh, I'll be rescheduling that as soon as humanly possible um, because I've got six... Uh, Fantastic Australian Rieslings provided by a different drop, which I am very, very keen to uh, to look at with a, a guest. So um, I keep keep your eyes uh, peeled on uh, social medias for uh, when that gets rescheduled. But uh, yeah, and uh, look, um, as I just mentioned, um, I will be over in Italy uh, for three weeks. Um, it's partly a, a work thing, but also it's a bit of a holiday. Um, looking forward to um, to actually doing a little bit of vintage, but um, I will actually be uh, sharing lots of my impressions on um, on Instagram and taking lots of photos and, and maybe some video, maybe even recording an episode of the Vincast whilst I'm away. Um, but uh, in my absence, what I'm actually going to do is, um, you may have noticed a few weeks ago, I did a, a back vintage, a seller release, an old episode of the Vincast. So I'm actually going to schedule some some um, some older episodes of the Vincast to, uh, to, to allow people to listen back to where the show kind of um, originated from because it has evolved a little bit uh, over the last almost two years. Um, for this episode, I spoke to uh, an, an icon of the Australian wine industry, and I was really, really excited to be invited to uh, celebrate the the 
2010 vintage release of the 1860 Vines Shiraz from Tabilk, um, but also to celebrate the 150th anniversary of those vines um, and and that was at Vunamond and it was a fantastic event. Um, uh, I was invited by former guest of the podcast Kathy Lane from Fireworks PR uh, because she uh, has worked for many years very closely with Tabilk and indeed on this uh, particular project and so uh, it was amazing tasting, wonderful lunch and after the lunch sat down with Alistair uh, in the restaurants and uh, we had a chat about about his background and um, and his journey with Tabilk. So I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Please stick around until the end of the episode so you can hear uh, all the different ways you can contact Alistair and myself to, to let us know if you enjoyed it. But I will see you on the other side. Alistair, thank you very much for making some time to be on the Bincast. And uh, more importantly, thank you very much for uh, inviting me uh, and all these other fantastic people to, to share in this Venus history of uh, Tabilk here at uh, Voudemont on, I think, is it the 55th floor? Um, but yeah, thank you for your hospitality. Uh, well, the the pleasure is not all mine. In that, uh, <laughs> there is a little bit of self-interest that's involved with this particular tasting, uh, because uh, as far as myself and the winemaking team is concerned, uh, this is the first time that we've actually all participated in a complete vertical tasting of the 1860 Vines Shiraz. So mm, mm. it's been a real experience uh, for us as well. It's it's funny actually on a, an episode uh, I think last week or the week before um, with my winemaker guests I was talking about you know travelling around the world and visiting wineries and sort of feeling unworthy when when their hosts said oh let's open up wine from the cellar and I said but They've, they've got self-interest in that they want to taste the wine as well. You know, it's not like they're going to have you, oh, you just have it. We're not going to have any of that. They want to taste it as well. So, of course, it's an opportunity for you guys to sort of look back on the history as well. But um, I usually start every episode by asking my guest what, uh, what they, if they can remember their earliest uh, interaction with wine that kind of cemented them wanting to, to follow that career and their life in wine. Well, for me, the first memory uh, to do with wine is around the first time I was allowed to actually drink a wine. How old were you? Four. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, was it was it a taste, or were you actually drinking it? Uh, I was drinking. It. We had a tradition back in those days yeah. that uh, every Sunday lunch, uh, we, uh, as in myself, my sister. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother and my parents would yep. go down to my grandparents yep. for Sunday lunch. Right. Uh, so that was the tradition. And I was always fascinated uh, with the adults drinking this liquid, which was usually red, mm -hmm. uh, and seemingly enjoying it so mm -hmm. much with the food. You mm -hmm. know, and the conversation was flowing, and it, it seemed like a, you know, the whole thing worked together. The food, this liquid, and, uh, this and kind that of was all good times. This, time. this <laughs> mythical combination of, <laughs> That's of, right. of, of, of elements. That's right. So I asked at quite an early age you know, whether I could try some of this liquid, yep. which I found out was wine. Yep. Uh, you know, I was allowed to have the food. I was allowed to be participate in the conversation. I just hadn't finished the trifecta you sure. know, and, <laughs> and had the liquid. So my grandfather pointed out to me that uh, that only adults could drink 
wine. Yes. And that I would have to get to the very grand age of four years <laughs> before I would be allowed. Yeah. Well, you can imagine what that did for a young fellow. You know, I, <laughs> I was counting down the days, you know, to when I was actually going to turn four years of age. So I turned four. Uh, the next Sunday lunch, we're down uh, having uh, uh, lunch with the grandparents and parents. Uh, and of course, uh, grandfather made a very big occasion of presenting me with my first wine, mm -hmm. red wine, mm -hmm. uh, which I drank and I, I felt very adult uh, and uh, and very much a part of the the team. Then you know, the what I found out later though was. Uh, that it, it actually had been watered down <laughs> quite dramatically. It tasted okay to me. Sure. Uh, but uh, so, so what I got for some years then was a water and wine mix. Okay. Uh, but still was very happy to be, uh, to be included with the, you know, with the adults. So what kind of wine was it um, back then? Oh, back in those days, uh, it, it probably was Shiraz. Uh, it could have been Cabernet, but but for Tabilk, in fact, for the industry, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, when you're talking late 50s uh, through to early 60s, mm. there wasn't a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon produced. Tabilk had a little bit, uh, but the, the industry was dominantly Shiraz-driven. But And was it um, dry wine or was it fortified wine? Oh, no, it was dry wine, so okay. table wine. So, table wine. So this is like, you know... Right at the beginning of when, when sort of dry wine started to come back into the fore, I guess. That's very true. But Grandfather was always uh, very keen to develop Tabilk as a table wine house. Now, the industry was very much a fortified winemaking industry. Of course. Uh, even up until uh, the early 1970s. Yeah. So when Grandfather uh, started at Tabilk, started managing Tabilk in 1931, he... He decided uh, that he wasn't going to continue with fortified wines, uh, which really was where the market was for wine. And uh, not only did he decide he was going to concentrate on table wine, which was almost unheard of back in those days, but he decided to label some of them varietally. Now we all wow. take, yeah, we all take varietal labelling as well. You know, what's the big deal? Everything's varietal labelling. But you know, in Australia, uh, even up until the mid 1970s, there was a lot of generic terms used, well, know, just, such as claret, burgundy. Just and today, so it goes you know, on. we were looking at um, going back to 1979, the first vintage of mm. the the 1860s vine Shiraz, and it still had claret on it. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, exactly you know, cause, right. Because I started working in the wine industry in 2004, and mm. by then they were long, long gone. You know. That, although they still refer to it as sparkling burgundy or champagne, I don't, I don't know if you'll completely get rid of that. But, uh, mm. but um, what was what was his influence as far as wanting to make dry table wine? Uh, grandfather was he was Australian born, but he was educated in England. Okay, uh, so he was doing law and accountancy at Cambridge University. Right. Uh, and uh, so it had been a reverse immigration, if you like. So his family <laughs> had moved out to Australia. He was born with his two brothers in Australia. Then they all moved back to England. Yeah. And with that, uh, he, his father, my great-grandfather, was very keen on his wines. Sure. Uh, and, of course, in England... It was the table wines of Europe and particularly France, yeah, which were drunk. So he got to taste and drink a lot of Bordeaux, a lot of Burgundy, uh, and so it goes on. Mm. So he acquired, you know, quite a good palate uh, for table wine, mm -hmm. and 
could discern, you know, what was good table wine versus what was not very good table wine. Okay. So uh, how did your family um, initially come to, to purchase um, Tibilk, or as it was called, Chateau Tibilk? Well, again, that, that gets back to the reverse immigration story. Sure. Uh, uh, so they moved back to England. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, great-grandfather, who ultimately purchased Tibilk, uh, decided to get into politics, so he ended up would you believe, a member of the House of Commons, an Australian-born member of the House of Commons. I don't, I don't know how many people... Is that possible? Uh, I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> it, it certainly was back in those days. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and he did quite well with uh, his businesses. So uh, he decided, sight unseen, living in England, to buy to bilk, which was going for a very distressed price back in 1925, uh, and... and, uh, and did purchase it. Did it have much of a reputation at that point? Like, was it was it sort of known to produce good wine? I think Tabilk had a very high reputation uh, in its earlier years uh, as it was uh, pre, developing. Pre-phylloxera type 1870s, stuff. 1870s, 1880s, yeah. 1890s. Okay. Uh, it was uh, then uh, a number of things happened to Tabilk in the late 1880s, early 1890s, which which led to a period of decline. Uh, yeah, of the course. founder passed away, uh-huh. uh, and so his wife inherited it and immediately moved back to England. So management by that distance wasn't wasn't very successful. Yeah. The winemaker manager of the day who took to build through what we call its first golden age decided to take another job, as people do. Yeah, of course. And Phylloxera struck. So yes. those three things sent yeah. Tabilk into a period of decline. So Tabilk had a very high reputation in the late 1800s, wine. and then its reputation declined okay. until great-grandfather purchased it in 1925. But it's one of those, that, those things of, you know, identifying it as a great site. So, you know, that site's always going to be there. So it would have been an opportunity when your great-grandfather purchased it to sort of, you know, bring it back to the fore again, I guess. Well, it... it it theoretically could have been, but he didn't buy it to bring it back to its former glory as a vineyard and winery. He actually bought it to break it up into dairy blocks. Oh! And for those people that have visited to Bilk, you would know we've got a lot of water uh, around the property. Yes. Uh, and so it was ideal for, for dairy blocks, for irrigating blocks sure. and so on. So he actually saw it as an investment strategy uh, that he was going to make a killing on in Australia. Right. It was when he visited uh, just after purchase in 19, later 1925 yep. and he brought his eldest son, my grandfather, Eric, with him, who was still at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, grandfather actually fell in love with the property right. and then for the rest of his time until he graduated in 1929, uh, he spent convincing his father that he shouldn't break the property up into dairy lots, that actually it had a future as a winery. Of course. Ultimately, he obviously won that argument and then returned in 1931 uh, with my grandmother and my father, who was one year one years of age, mm-hmm. uh, to then start the restoration process for the winery. So when it was purchased, there was already Shiraz planted? Oh, yes. Was there anything else planted? Lots of varieties. Okay. The Phylloxera had cut the vineyards down from about 350 acres to 30 acres, so wow. it had decimated it. Sure. The, most of the varieties, apart from Shiraz, that were left were fortified yep. varieties. Yep. Uh, all the earlier Marsan, for instance, had been lost. Okay. Um, so, so, so Marsan had already been planted there? Yeah, in the 1860s. Right, okay. 
Um, but obviously, part of the reason that there, there is still the vineyard, um, you know, going back to the 1860s, is because of that particular part. It's it's quite special, and it sort of is resistant to phylloxera. That was one of the first things that uh, I learnt about when I started, you know, learning about wine. Was you know, oh, phylloxera, 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 except at uh, at Tabilk because mm-hmm. they have this particular part. So, um, from memory, it's it's because it, um, of the sand. Yes, that's yeah. correct. So the only uh, patch of own rooted vines that we have left are those 1860 planted Shiraz vines. Mm-hmm. And the reason they did survive, uh, you're quite right, is because of the sandy soil. Yeah. Now, Phylloxera is a microscopic aphid and it finds it very hard to penetrate the soil and so penetrate the roots of the vines yeah. because of the tiny grains uh, of sand. Loves clay. uh, Exactly. So the analogy is uh, an eight-lane German autobahn Mm. uh, is like clay, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, you know, it's wide open. The traffic can move through really quickly. Phylloxera loves that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Imagine the same eight-lane autobahn, but with a rock fall over it. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it's a little bit hard to to get around that. (laughs) So that's, that, uh, was one of the reasons that, yep. that those vines survived. The other is be- because the water table is only about two metres below the surface. Vines, those vines were about 30 years of age when phylloxera struck to bilk, mm-hmm. so they had their tap roots well and truly down cool. into the soil sure. and into the moisture. So that combination of sand and having available moisture got them through right. and continues to get them through to this day. And the decision to to replant Masan was made by your grandfather? By my grandfather. So uh, the oldest vines we have now date back to 1927. So... Purchased in 1925, grandfather was still at Cambridge University until 1929, mm-hmm. but got the instruction back to Tabilk mm-hmm. that he wanted to plant Marsan, and so they did in 1927. Now, when grandfather was alive, I asked him why would you, you know, why was your first decision <laughs> that you were going to plant Marsan? Mm-hmm. I could think of a hundred other varieties that would have been more suitable for the time. He actually didn't have a reason. He couldn't remember why he, he did that. Uh, all we're thinking, as in future generations, is thank God <laughs> he did mm-hmm. uh, because that old block of Marsan now uh, is really valuable for us and, and makes a great single vineyard uh, wine from it in, in much the same way that uh, we do with the 1860 vine Shiraz. So clearly your grandfather was a huge influence on you when you were young. Was there, did you even entertain the thought of not kind of um, following the family into, into the wine business? Oh, a- absolutely. I uh, made uh, a very quick an ad hoc decision after I'd finished uh, my uh, the equivalent of year 12, we used to call matriculation exams, uh, and uh, we were having, again, another Sunday lunch at Grandfather's. Uh, it was a Christmas lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd finished, uh, I got my marks back, and, and uh, in those days, you know, I was we, we, we all pretty much just did sciences, mm-hmm. so that opened up all the career paths. And grandfather posed the question to me, and given that I would have to be looking at university for the next year, is, you know, well, what are you going to wh- do? What are you going to do? <laughs> you know, and I'd been flirting with the idea of uh, of politics sure. uh, before that. Uh, anyway, under pressure from grandfather, uh, I, for a reason I still don't quite understand myself, just blurted out to 
him and to everyone else that was there uh, that I'd decided that I was going to become a winemaker. Sure. Well, you can imagine that that led to a fair bit of uproar and you know celebrations and and everything else happening uh, around the table. So we finished off lunch, uh, went back home with my parents and got Dad aside afterwards and said, um, Dad. Uh, I've just sort of made this statement, I'm going to be a winemaker. But I've done no, no preparation for this. It was sort of like a spur of the moment thing. Uh, where would I train or where would I learn yeah. uh, winemaking? And he said, oh, don't you worry about it, Alistair. Uh, I've got you booked in for an interview in mid-January, so two weeks later, at <laughs> Roseworthy College. Yep. Uh, and uh, provided the interview goes well, you're starting in February. Mm. <laughs> I said... <laughs> <laughs> how did that happen? So Dad obviously thought that I was had that inclination, unbeknownst to myself, uh, and made all the arrangements. But you had, you'd done some science studies uh, in high school. That's right. Well, mm. you know, obviously that plays into it in a certain way because mm. you know it's. It, was it a bachelor at that point, or was it just like a diploma? It was a diploma. Diploma but, in enology. Okay. You know, I mean, now it's kind of referred to yeah. often as bachelor of wine, wine science or mm. applied wine science. Exactly. Applied sciences in mm. wine. You know, and of course, you know that that sort of plays into it. Surely, you know, your dad would have identified. Oh, like the sciences, maybe you know he might end up doing this anyway. Um, so I'll make all the arrangements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like yeah, I'll just keep that in my back pocket. So when he does kind of go, I'm going to do this thing. I'll make it sound like it's his decision. Um, and, and so, what was uh, studying at Rose? Were they like back in those days? Well, in those days, you had to do agriculture at least two years agriculture to qualify for the wine course. Wow. Uh, now, as it turned out for me, that was good because because we've got quite a large agricultural property at sure, Bilk as sure. well. So that was useful uh, and it, uh, it became a lot different where you know obviously once the wine industry kind of really blew up and and then you know much bigger businesses you wouldn't need to necessarily know both you could just be a winemaker oh, absolutely or you could just be yeah. a viticulturalist but now i think they're actually it's combined it's gone back to being combined again at uh, with that late uni uh, well now uh, after after that and as the wine industry took off then it was changed from the Roseworthy campus out at Gawler to becoming an Adelaide University degree. Mm. And that happened in the early 1980s. Yeah, okay. So that was a little bit after my course. Sure. So Roseworthy, though, for me, was fantastic because we were out in the country. Uh, and, you know, I'm a country boy. It was great. A uh, couple of local pubs nearby. Uh, you're close to Adelaide, so you could get down. And, mm. you know, we got to know the university crowd as well. Was, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, after ag, into the wine course. And there were only 20 of us uh, in the wine course. And it only happened every two years. So oh, wow. there were not a lot of qualified winemakers being churned out. You know, on average, less than 10 per year. Were, uh, were a lot of them, um, like yourself, coming from wine families? Yeah, there were. There was, I'd say, in our year at least, it was about an equal split. So okay. about half from multi-generational wine families yep. and the other half from young guys that were just really keen to carve their career in the wine industry. Mm. And, you know, a lot of them have done very well. Mm -mm. Um, so... Uh, what was once you'd sort of um, had your experience, um, you know, learning the, the 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 technique, I guess, the science, you know, around it. What, um, were, you, were you still coming back and, and sort of participating in vintages at all? Back at Tabilk? 
Whilst you're you, studying? You, while we're studying. Yeah. That was part of the course. Yeah. Uh, now, I didn't do vintage at Tobilk. The, no. the course, part of the course criteria was that you would go out if, and if you're a family, coming from a family winemaker background, you'd go to another Typically. winery, not sure. to, back to your own. Yep. Uh, so I actually did my two vintages. Uh, one was down in McLaren Vale at Hardy's, the okay. old Hardy's Tintara. Tintara, yep. Uh, and the other one was at Bill Bangra in Griffith, which was one of the McWilliams wineries, which has since closed. Right. What was that like? Uh, well, the the reason that I wanted to do both those wineries is because for their day, they were actually quite modern and forward-thinking. Sure. Uh, they had stainless steel refrigeration, all the things that we take for granted now, yeah. but it was actually quite new back in the in the mid-70s. So, right. uh, so, yeah, I really enjoyed doing the, the vintages there. And, the and, other, and that sort of played into, you know, the decisions that you made later on coming back to Tobilk? Uh, well, certainly we were going through a big learning exercise. The other part of the, the course criteria, which with the benefit of hindsight was really smart, uh, was that we did a lot of tours. Uh, so we would do a visit to the Hunter Valley, we would do a visit to the Barossa Valley, we'd visit McLaren Vale, mm -hmm. we'd visit Victorian wineries. So it allowed us to sort of see uh, some of the very new winery businesses that were being built back in those days. Yeah. Like, a young Rosemount, sure, sure. <laughs> a young Rothbury, you know, up in the Hunter, yep. uh, Mitchelton across from Tobilk, yep. you know, in early 70s was, a, was an unbelievable uh, tourism extravaganza. Mm. So we saw that as well as linking up with uh, some of the, uh, the older family winemakers who were doing wine styles very traditionally, including the fortified wines from Rutherglen. Mm. So when you finished and, and did you come straight back to Tobilk? No, I, I, my first job uh, was down in Coonawarra. Yep. Uh, with Mildara, now part of Treasury Wine Estates. Mm. Nearly everything's part of Treasury Wine Estates now. Uh, that, uh, that was there known by the Hazelgrove family. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had never appointed a winemaker in Coonawarra. So I was actually the first. Non family? Uh, no, no. Or... They never had an appointed winemaker. They used to send a winemaker down from head office at Merbeen. Oh, in right. Okay. Yep. Uh, so, uh, so I got that appointment, and that was great to get two vintages in Coonawarra. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was transitioning. Um, through to Mildura, down to Coonawarra, and ultimately did one further vintage at the old Baronga Hill winery, uh, and uh, uh, that was just that was in near Mildura as well. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to do that in 1978 before I came home is because they had, to my mind, the best appointed, most modern winemaking facility in Australia, and I just wanted to get some experience with that for a vintage, to uh, because I knew that my first job when I got home was to build. Um, and uh, have erected a new white wine fermentation cellar. Uh, so I just wanted to get right up to date with where technology was at at the time. My sincerest apologies for interrupting another fascinating chat on the podcast, uh, but I just wanted to let you know about another supporter of the Vincast, which is Wine Companion. Wine Companion is one of the leading resources as far as wine writing in this country. Uh, not only do uh, do they produce the annual uh, wine guide from James Halliday, which uh, catalogues all the wines for the year uh, from around Australia and also gives ratings, uh, particularly to the wineries themselves, but you also can get the Wine Companion magazine, which uh, as well as having fantastic tasting notes and buying guides also has some wonderful articles written by some of the leading wine writers in Australia uh, including 
some of the guests of the podcast. Uh, and if, uh, if you wanted to go to the website, winecompanion.com.au, uh, you'll find a huge resource, an amazing database of uh, tasting notes and ratings of wines. And for listeners to the, the Vincast, we have a special, special deal. If you put in the code intrepid30 at purchase, you can get a 30% discount on any subscription package, which is an amazing deal. Uh, and it's a great way uh, to to show your support of the Vincast and to let Wine Companion know that the Vincast sent you. So thank you very much, guys, for uh, your support. Was it interesting to kind of um, be witnessing uh, that evolution of the Australian wine industry, sort of away from fortified wines and more into table wines and and, and you know more into white wines mm. in particular? Yeah, well, certainly from my perspective it was. Uh, from my family's perspective, given grandfather's great love of table wines from back in the 1930s, uh, that really dovetailed nicely into the family's aspirations as well. Yeah. Uh, and and so then it was a matter of getting on with the job uh, at Tabilk, which was dramatically changing the whites and improving the reds, mm. but improving without changing the pedigree. That mm. was the key. Um, so dramatic change of whites, but uh, uh, a less challenging role with the red wines. When you eventually did come back to, to work uh, at Tabilk, who was in charge? Grandfather uh, was the CEO uh, up until the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. So when I got back in 1978 for my first vintage 1979, uh, Dad was uh, the CEO, mm-hmm. uh, and then he decided uh, only or less than a year after I'd been back at Tabilk uh, that he was going to start a sales organisation in New South Wales, in Sydney. Uh, so then he transitioned the mantle of or general manager uh, to me mm-hmm. uh, in 1980 at the then ripe old age of 25. <laughs> so... Uh, so uh, so that was really interesting because Dad did move to Sydney, did start uh, what became a very successful sales organisation for us, mm-hmm. and and so that led me to have to rely on Grandfather a lot, although he was technically retired. Yeah. Not so much around winemaking, uh, but more around business management and just life experience. Sure. So I became, in the end, very close to Grandfather. And he would have worked, you know, pretty closely with his father, you know, particularly in terms of, um, you know, the decisions early on. So having that kind of wealth of knowledge with him, you know, and that just kind of mentoring um, role, I guess, would have been fantastic, particularly considering, you know, you, you know, took, took over at, uh, you know, in your mm. mid-20s. Mm. Um, what, what, what sort of uh, change did you start to make you know, at, at to build not just in the in the winery, you know, in the vineyards, as far as you know how to talk about the wines to the consumers. I'm assuming you know the the, the market for wine in the 80s changed significantly. You know, it it, it changed more significantly in the 90s. It yeah. was changing okay. in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, the 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 job I had to do initially at to build was more around trying to get some financial stability uh, back into the operation. Mm. Uh, what, what I inherited in, in 1978, 1979 uh, was a cellar full uh, of red wine that really wasn't of a quality and not good enough to put under the Tabilk label. Mm. And that was because Mother Nature had been particularly unkind uh, for a number of years. We had a, a number of wet years. And the, uh, the viticultural technology that we had available back in those days was pretty primitive compared to what we 
we have a, available now. Yeah. So there was a lot of disease, which meant the, the wines were picked quite green, and so they were light and insipid and flavourless and so on. Uh, so that was a, a, a big ask, as well as building the new white wine fermentation cellar and dramatically lifting and changing the quality of the white wine. So that sort of took me my first decade <laughs> in the role, um, just uh, you know, by the late 80s, early 90s, just to get things back uh, on an even keel where uh, we were profitable, uh, we'd got rid of all of those uh, poor wine surpluses uh, and we were starting to uh, be more consistent with both our white and our red wines uh, from a quality perspective mm -hmm. and we were getting a little bit more respect in the marketplace because of that. Um, How does one get rid of reserves of, uh, of wine like that? You, just, just, just sales? Just you, uh, probably as you do nowadays, really, you make up labels mm. and, uh, and you sell at a very low price point. Mm. Uh, in our case, we gave it a little bit of a tabilk imprimatur because otherwise no one would buy it. Mm. Uh, and that was able, we were able to clear those stocks out. Uh, did that affect you know the, the brand in any way, or was it no? Because it, it wasn't uh, a to book um, uh, pr proprietary mm. branded um, label. Mm -hmm. It was a, 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 a made up label, but with just a little bit of to build imprimatur on it. Which yeah. kind of does happen so, now, like with, you know, obviously more recently there's been a, a surplus, a, you know, an oversupply mm -hmm. of wine, and so wineries have, um, you know, been doing deals with certain retailing businesses, and mm -hmm. they kind of advertise, and they don't say where it's necessarily from, they say, oh, it's a Shiraz from McLaren Vale, and, you know, James Halliday gave it 95 points, but it, we've got it for $15 mm -hmm. kind of thing. You know, so it's, I guess so, it's, so it's, it's good to know that's, that's been similar, going a long time. Similar principle, yeah, <laughs> similar philosophy. Um, what what was the the main market? We mostly only selling wine in Australia at that point back back yes, in the eighties. Yes, uh, yeah. Grandfather had set up some export markets uh, in the nineteen fifties, but they were it was very small volumes. Mm. Mm. Uh, our dominant market was our home state of Victoria. Mm -hmm. uh, Dad, as I as I said earlier, had done a really good job of establishing a successful sales operation in. Uh, New South Wales and mm -hmm. Sydney so they were our two main states and you know we were we were very we were very small back in those days mm -hmm. but but that was essentially where the dominant sales occurred I seem to remember one of the things that people I think that the two things that people said to me that was so wonderful about Tabilk firstly was the 1860s Shiraz you know ungrafted pre-phylloxera the other thing was about the Marsan was that at one point it was Queen Elizabeth's white wine of choice. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, that's, that is correct. What, what's so, the story there? <laughs> so uh, Queen Elizabeth was coronated in 1953. Yeah. And so she decided to have a Heads of Commonwealth luncheon mm -hmm. immediately after her coronation. Mm -hmm. So within that context, given it was the Heads of the Commonwealth, whoever it was that was advising her suggested that really uh, European wines shouldn't be used, but we should use Commonwealth wines. Mm. And it was recommended uh, that the, a Hunter Valley Shiraz and a Tabuk Marsan should be the wines. Mm. Julie happened, and that was the beginning of uh, her uh, knowledge of uh, and drinking of 
colonial wine, Australian wine. Mm. Uh, but the good news for us was he actually really did enjoy the Marsan because it was light and fresh uh, style. So uh, just she was a hip, so, hip young, you know. Well, she was. That's right. She was young. Yeah, the 60s yeah. yet. So, uh, so uh, instructions were given to the Buckingham Palace cellar staff mm-hmm. to buy on a regular basis um, to build my son. Mm. Now. I don't know how much Tabilk Marsan is left in the cellars, but it wouldn't surprise me if they've actually got better stocks of Tabilk Marsan <laughs> from the 50s and 60s and 70s than we've actually got at Tabilk. Yeah, if we have to find out if, you know, if we can have get to in ask. contact with someone, yeah. <laughs> you, know, but, you know, remember you used to like um, Tabilk Marsan. You don't happen to have any old bottles in the cellar, do you? Because we'd love to have a look at them. Mm. Um, so that was uh, when your grandfather was... Um, in charge of the wine. How, yes. did, how did he feel about that? Oh, very, because Australian-born, but, you know, went back to England, educated, tertiary education mm. uh, at Cambridge. So he felt, you know, he was a good cross between, you know, a good Aussie mm. and an Englishman. Mm. Uh, so to get that sort of support from someone of her stature, the young Queen's stature, uh, he, he, was, he would have been absolutely abuzz with mm. that. Does she ever visit? Oh, yes. Uh, she has visited. Uh, Prince Philip has visited at least three times. Wow. Uh, and uh, this all happened there was, there was a time in the 60s and in the 1970s as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yes, we, uh, and we've even had uh, um, Princess Di and Prince Charles mm-hmm. visit once as well. But not so, the next so, generation? So, uh, no, not as no, yet. No William? Not as yet. No, just the two generations. We can, we can, we'll cross our fingers. <laughs> um, so uh, did that impact in, as far as sales of Tabilk wines in the UK, for example? Oh, I think anything like that adds credibility to, sure. to a label or to a brand. Sure. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of the little things that add to make it to make it important uh, to reach people's radar mm-hmm. uh, and certainly uh, Tabilk was getting uh, back in the 50s and the 60s was getting some really nice accolades in England mm-hmm. and that didn't do the ex- those sales any harm uh, but as I say it was still even with those sales occurring it was still a relatively small part of the total sales compared to New South Wales and Victoria. Mm. Now, today we've um, obviously had a fantastic retrospective on the 1860s Shiraz, going back to the first vintage and your your first vintage, 1979 officially. Um, and, you know, it was a great opportunity to sort of look at the ageing potential for Australian Shiraz, you know, of provenance. Um, but again, one of the things that um, I, one of the first things that I was taught about to Bilk was the ageing potential for Massan. Now, a lot of people will talk about, you know, ageing potential for Riesling uh, in Australia, but probably a lot of people don't think of, you know, Marsan as a particularly, or Hunter Semyon, of course. But wh- what is it so, so special about the Tabilk Marsan that means it can age so well? Because when it's young, it's, as you said, you know, lovely and light and fresh mm-hmm. and, and, and crisp. How does it evolve and, and, and how, did, how does it kind of pick up those characteristics with age? Well, it's... it's, it's a similar principle to what happens with Riesling from some regions, and you mentioned Hunter Semyon, particularly Hunter Semyon. Uh, if you're picking uh, uh, the white fruit a little bit earlier, uh, so you've got higher natural acidity, uh, so it is a nice, fresh, young wine, yeah. but because of that higher acidity, it's actually got the backbone then to continue to develop in the bottle. And, and so it goes uh, from that fresh fruit style 
uh, to in the case of Marsan, it develops toast and honey honeysuckle flavours. Yeah. Now older rieslings develop the toasty flavours, as does older semion. Yeah. yeah. So there is that commonality. So they're the three white varieties. As long as they're only stainless steel fermented out of Australia from some regions that you can bank on, will sell her and sell her well. So, so putting it into barrel, you think has too much of an oxidative impact, and that that can affect the aging potential of the wine. Yes, absolutely. The uh, by by adding some barrel ferment or even a hundred percent barrel ferment, you, what you're doing is you're building the middle palate, so it's broader. Yeah. And the broader it is to start with, the quicker it's going to get to full maturity. Sure. So what you're looking for in a, a white wine that's going to have cellaring potential is something that's quite angular and tight with a good acid backbone as a young wine. Mm. Then it'll put layers on with age uh, but it'll continue to grow and develop uh, so it, it's it's sort of it's just it's it's simple biology what know. do you think of the aging potential of chardonnay in australia uh, it depends on the region uh, and it depends on how it's made mm. so the the chardonnays that do have some aging potential are generally the very cool climate chardonnays yep. so they'll be high altitude or Tasmanian mm. uh, and if you look at the analysis you'll find that they've got really good acid backbones mm. notwithstanding that they have been barrel fermented but their uh, the acid backbone is going to hold them together now perhaps not for as long as some of the Riesling Semions and Marsan can age for yep. but at least you'll get some medium term aging out of those wines yeah from the warmer climates, where they're bigger, broader styles, it's only going to be a short-term cellaring proposition for Chardonnay. And that's possibly, you know, what they might be looking for because, you know, I think it's pretty well known that in Australia we tend not to cellar wines. You know, we, we buy them and drink them almost immediately. So well, within 24 hours, I think yeah. the stat is. So. <laughs> um, and I think that it was really um, telling that the wines we we're looking at today, you know, those those Shiraz wines, that you know, it, it came up in, in discussion several times about the... The, the alcohol levels of most of them, I think of of the however many vintages we looked at going back to 1979, there were only two that were over 14% alcohol. Mm. And, and I, I would think that, you know, I, I kind of found even the wines from the 80s were still very fresh. You know, they still had a lot of acidity. And I think that that's probably what's keeping them together so well, mm. even though they have gone into barrels. So I think, you know, you, you are, you know, 100% correct. Mm. Um, the, the, the acid backbone is so important. Yeah, that's right. And, and there is a, a misconception by many people, many wine consumers, that higher alcohol equals longer-term cellaring potential. No, that's rubbish. It, it's, it's just not true. Uh, so uh, the 1860 vine Shiraz typically uh, has ranged between, say, 125 and 13.5% equivalency, yeah. occasionally a little bit higher, occasionally a little bit lower, yeah. uh, but that's pretty much the strike zone. Uh, and, and so they're, they're not very high in alcohol. They're quite elegant wines, yeah. but they have got that really good acid backbone. Yeah. Uh, you can use a little bit of new oak with them. Uh, that's just going to add extra complexity. But these wines, as you've seen today, will go on quite happily for their 20, 30, 35 years or more. So you, of course, um, you know, you took over from your father when you became CEO and then you were, you know, you had been mentored and you continued to be mentored by your grandfather. Um, at some point, you're going to be in a position where you're sort of passing on the, the business to, um, to your 
children. Um, what, how, how are you kind of involving uh, your children into the business and, and what, what's their um, import, impact, I guess, or what, what, how are they uh, working with into milk? Well, I also have a brother uh, and a sister yep. uh, and they have children as well. So Great. we've got a wider pool than just my two children. I've got a son <laughs> and a daughter. Oh, wonderful. Uh, but at this moment, it is only my daughter, Hayley, uh, who is working full-time with the business. Okay. She's been with us now for uh, five years. Uh, she's taken a couple of short stints away on maternity leave. So, okay. so uh, she's presented um, two grandsons uh, in the interim. Uh, and she is uh, our environmental warrior and be- has been looking after uh, all of the uh, environmental work that we've been doing on the estate. Okay. Uh, so uh, to answer the question around uh, the transfer of information and mentoring. Mm. Uh, Certainly Hayley and I are very close. Uh, We talk a lot. We work well together. And I think it's the dynamic of male and female as well mm. uh, makes it a, a really interesting and different relationship. So, uh, so that's sort of one, number one. Uh, I'm hoping um, that we'll have other uh, of the next gens uh, in time who will come back. My sister has uh, her, her youngest daughter uh, is uh, into uh, marketing and events management. Okay. And she's very interested, uh, once she's got experience outside of the company, mm-hmm. to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping that that'll happen over the next two or three years. Mm. And then we'll wait and see what, what, what else unfolds uh, with the rest. Now, you mentioned Next Gen, um, and I think a, a big part of the, 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 um, the Australia's first families of wine um, kind of group is that kind of next gen and they're all quite collaborative and in fact I've had a couple of those mm-hmm. members on the podcast before and you I think were f- one of the founding members of mm-hmm. the the AFFW mm-hmm. what what tell me what was the kind of the idea behind starting that association there were uh, four of us that came together mm-hmm. uh, Rob Hill Smith uh, Ross Brown Mitchell Taylor yep and myself after the uh, wine Australia event in 2008 mm-hmm. and we decided to get together after the event just to have a talk about some concerns that we all had around the negative publicity that Australia or brand Australia yeah. was generating yeah. overseas yeah. Uh, which uh, was becoming quite significant and and it was coming from not only our international competitors so you could expect that the french and the italians might have a go at us saying oh you know australia can only produce industrial wine or mm. sunshine in the bottle but mm. it was actually uh, also coming from you know well-respected wine critics who we thought should have known better like chances robinson. robinson exactly mm. so so we were concerned about that so from that conversation uh, came a thought of well can we put together a group of winemakers yep. who truly represent you know, the best of what Australia is about, yep. that have got credibility, uh, that we might be able to take out internationally to help uh, change this Queen Mary of negative press into something more positive? Mm-hmm. So out of that initial conversation ultimately came the concept of Australia's First Families of Wine. Uh, and um, the rest is history, as they say. We launched in 2009 um, with uh, 12 uh, family, multi-generational family winemakers. Yep. Uh, and there's no doubt that, that what we uh, achieved in those earlier times, particularly in the UK, was very effective. And uh, what we did was very much did 
something similar to today, which was we showcased some of the great old wines mm. uh, that have been made by the various winemakers uh, back in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And wow. it just completely blew the wine critics away and started to generate some positive press, you know. And even, uh, I know, Jancis Robinson came out in an article saying, oh, look, I think I've been a bit hard on the Australian category. I've just <laughs> tried all these, you know, wonderful wines. Mm. Uh, so uh, it was basically... Let's give Australia another chance. Sure. Yeah. So, so that's what's been happening over the last five or six years. Because I remember um, back in, in 2008 was when I started my, uh, my Masters of Wine business. And so in, in the kind of the marketing studies uh, and sort of the global market studies, there was obviously that talk about, what is it, was it called, Strategy 2025 or something like that. And, and, and what I felt was missing was that talk about regionality and talk about personality, like they were talking about brand and it was brand Australia and I thought that they were really missing the mark and so when the Australia's first families of wine um, kind of association started I thought this is this is fantastic this is what we need to be talking about because we need to be sort of saying hey I know you think of us as new world but we've been doing it a long time and you know here's wines from all over Australia and they're all different and they're all making beautiful wines mm. you know you can't think of Australian wine as one thing because it's not mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, and that's exciting to sort of see, um, the, you know, the young mm. kids of, of, of the families sort of um, organising stuff as well. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. And, and the, the clear message that we had back in those early days and we still keep uh, sending out there to anyone who, who's willing to listen is, you know, what we're hoping to do is showcase the diversity of region and variety to yeah. you. And if you like what you're tasting from First Families, well, guess what? There's a whole lot of other winemakers back in Australia sure. who are doing it just as well, if not better, than what we're doing. You know? yeah. So it's that sort of message is, is continuing to, to bat for sort of the whole of Australia uh, and obviously, you know, we'll be the beneficiaries of, uh, of some of that positiveness in any case. And hopefully it is changing the, the sort of the influences overseas and, and how they're perceiving Australia and how mm. they're communicating about Australia, mm. but also about how we communicated ourselves. You know, as far as wine businesses here, you know, leading by example, you know, that, that means that other business can sort of say, great, you know, these guys are doing a fantastic job, you know, and we, we should be doing something similar. Yeah, and, and that's very true. And, and the other part of the strategy was to engage with the Gen X and Gen Y younger potential influencers mm. uh, in various countries around the world, including the UK, yeah. and then bringing them out to Australia so that they could actually see... What, what's happening or what was what is happening uh, and that's the best way seeing is believing and and now of course uh, that, and that program started five years ago uh, a lot of those younger potential influencers are now in positions uh, of responsibility mm. uh, and they've embraced Australia and so Australia's back which is great now speaking speaking of embracing young people it sounds like they're having a bit of a party outside <laughs> does, so does I think uh, maybe we can uh, wrap it up there but uh, obviously Alistair I really do appreciate you making some time for me and um, my audience I'm sure appreciate uh, you sharing your your story and your wisdom and and, and, and a bit about Tabilk so thank you very much for being on the podcast today uh, pleasure, James. Uh, so let's go and join the party. Fantastic. <laughs>
As always, guys, thank you for listening to another episode of the Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Tabilk, uh, definitely go to tabilk.com.au. Uh, and you can also follow all of the social media channels, fo- Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, all of those accounts are Tabilk Winery. If you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under at Intrepid Wino, and you can also find the podcast at The Vincast. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook, uh, you find me at facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, and Intrepid Wino is also the uh, YouTube channel that I have where I do lots of live uh, tastings, video tastings, uh, as well as some how-to videos, and that's where you're going to uh, hopefully see some videos that I'll be taking whilst I'm in Italy in the next three weeks. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do so on iTunes or the podcasting app on your iPhone, Stitcher, Player FM. There's lots of different podcasting um, platforms you could use. But if you do subscribe to the podcast, it means that you're going to get the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. And it also means that uh, you can leave a rating or a review of the podcast, which gets the word out about the podcast uh, to potential listeners and also potential guests. So I appreciate you providing some feedback. Uh, Of course, you can find all the information at intrepidwino.com, all the different uh, writings I've done in the past, uh, lots of uh, different videos that I've posted, as well as every episode of The Vincast. Uh, You can get in contact with me at thevincast at gmail.com because I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to suggest uh, a guest you'd like to hear on the podcast, that would be fantastic. Um, But uh, look, guys, I will get back to you in, uh, in three weeks' time, hopefully. Enjoy the back vintage episodes. Until next time. Bye.